Joe and Elaine Gary, along with their children, eldest daughter Brenda, along with two brothers, middle son Joey and youngest son Mikey, resided in the stunningly beautiful Pacific Northwest in the city of Kent, Washington. Joe and Elaine specifically moved there in an effort to give their children a safe and secure place to live, as it felt like the perfect place to raise a family. But sometime in 1982 or so, a thing started happening that shattered their once safe community. Women, particularly sex workers, were being picked up, ostensibly for their services, and they were being murdered and dumped along Washington State's Green River. Now the Green River is this amazing winding river that is 65 miles or 105 kilometers long. One end located at the Howard Hansen Reservoir and the other end empties into the Duwamish River, eventually leading into Puget Sound. And a part of the river does indeed wind through the city of Kent. And this was concerning to the Gary family. It started becoming a regular thing for people living in the area to come home in the evenings, turn on the local news, and hear of yet another young woman being discovered dumped along the Green River. Eventually, one victim turned up way too close to home for the Garys, no more than two miles away. And that was enough for them to decide that they needed to move away from the area. We can't live like this. There is this serial killer going around killing young women. We can't be near this. Dad Joe was very, very protective of his family. He had been a former police officer and he taught his children how to be tough, how to use a gun if they needed to. He taught them how to hunt. He allowed them access to a handgun just in case they needed to protect themselves from an intruder. So in order to put some distance between themselves and the serial killer, then known only by the moniker the Green River Killer, who would later on be identified as Gary Ridgway, and he is known to be responsible for at least 49 victims. In 1985, the Gary family moved to Bothell, Washington, situated approximately 20 miles or 32 kilometers north of the city of Seattle. The house they found itself was older and somewhat rustic, and the backyard was basically all woods. Brenda, along with her brothers, kind of got an eerie feeling about the place, kind of a dark vibe from the house, just because of its style and its construction. Dad felt like the place was perfect. As I said, he enjoyed hunting and fishing, so a backyard like this, he and the kids would be bringing home dinner every night. As for Brenda, well, at the time they relocated to Bothell, she was 12. And there were quite a few years between her and her youngest brother, so she kind of took on the role of a protector, sort of like a second mother, both to him and her middle brother. She was a bright, popular, strong, and determined young girl. She was used to roughhousing with her brothers and their dad. She enjoyed playing sports, specifically soccer and gymnastics, so she was tough. But despite that, 
Brenda had that feeling that there was something that didn't sit right with her about that house. And her dad, he kind of felt the same way. Just this strange feeling that the area wasn't safe. It seemed vulnerable, too wide open, too secluded. Like something bad could happen because nobody was around to hear it or see it. But mom, Elaine, she didn't share the same feelings. She felt like they just needed some time to get used to it, to get to know the neighbors. Her thing was that it was far enough away and safe from the Green River Killer. He was known to pick up sex workers, so he wouldn't be out here in this woodsy area looking for potential victims. She was confident that they were in a quiet and safe place. Joe, he hadn't been working at the time, and the nature of why that was is unclear. He had been in law enforcement, so at the time of their move, he wasn't working, and Elaine kind of felt he might be missing that aspect of his life. So she encouraged him to go find some work to keep himself busy, which he eventually did, finding work at a local car dealership. As for Elaine, well, prior to moving to Bothell, she worked in Veterans Affairs in downtown Seattle, so when she relocated, she transferred to a position within FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which was conveniently located in Bothell, so her commute would be considerably shorter which meant she would be very close to home towards the end of the day when the kids started trickling in from school. And Brenda had reached that age where she could be given more responsibility when it came to her little brothers. She was 12 and she insisted she was too old to have a babysitter and she would be able to take care of the boys until mom got home from work. She would be home for them, their bus would drop them off, and then Brenda would be in charge until mom would make her way home from work which was only 10 minutes away. So essentially, Brenda would only be by herself for about an hour and then by herself with the boys for a half hour and then mom would be home shortly. Brenda all but demanded that she be given the chance to show her mom that she could take care of them. So Elaine was like, okay, if you think you can handle this, that would be their routine. Brenda's school bus dropped her off at 2.30. She would come home. And her mom said in an interview that Brenda loved General Hospital, so I'm assuming it came on around 3 p.m., which sounded a little late to me, but this was the 80s. I watched General Hospital during a brief phase in my late teens and early 20s, and I believe it came on TV at 2 p.m., but either way, Brenda was hooked on General Hospital, as she should be. So she wanted to be done with her homework quickly so she could catch her show. And mom, like clockwork, would call the house at 2.55 to check in and make sure she was all good. Then she'd be on to her soap opera. Then her younger brothers and their bus would drop them off around 3.30. They would come home. Brenda would fix them something to eat. She would finish up her show. And then mom would be there by 4. It was a perfect system. The news of the Green River Killer was still all over the TV. So the kids would catch all the news on the local stations reporting about another victim and another victim and another. And it was particularly disturbing for Brenda. Mom would get home from work, and if another victim was found, she'd tell her mom her update on the body count. Elaine tried to reassure Brenda that this was a killer who was targeting sex workers or young girls that had run away from home. 
that she wasn't what this killer was looking for. Elaine really tried her best to not force her children into changing up how they lived their day-to-day lives because of this killer. The kids knew to be alert when it came to strangers that they spotted in the neighborhood. And if they were home alone, they had access to a loaded pistol. Joe wanted all of his kids to know how to protect themselves. And he did so by teaching them survival skills and how to hunt. As soon as they were able to hold a gun, he was on it. So one day, about three months after moving to Bothell, a man came knocking at the Gary door. The kids looking through the sliding glass had no idea who this guy was. He told the kids that their mom had called for some work on the plumbing. But Brenda, she was like, no, my mom would have told me if she'd call for a plumber. And she would have been there if she was expecting someone because the kids wouldn't know what to do or say, nor would they be able to pay the guy, right? Of course not. You're not going to call any service people over to the house with your 12-year-old in charge. It's just not going to happen. And the kids know that. And Brenda sat there staring at the man for a moment when she suddenly made a mad dash for the door and locked it before he could gain entry. Then she picked up her handgun and she told the man that she had a gun and that her dad was on his way home and he's a police officer so he better get out of there. The man let go of the door handle and left. So that evening, Dad called the police to report what had happened as they were thinking that this might be the Green River Killer. The police couldn't be certain. They had some other suspicious activity going on in the area aside from the Green River Killer, if you can imagine that, and that they would be looking into that. And the next day at school, it was like Brenda was the local hero for chasing this bad guy away, not being afraid to pull a gun on him. Her family and her brothers, they were really proud of the way she warded him off. But deep down, Brenda didn't feel as brave as everyone was making her out to be. She had already been on edge as a result of the serial killer killing women seemingly like every other day. And now, this stranger had come to their door. He has seen her. He knows where she lives. And he might even know that small window of time when she's home alone. So no, she isn't feeling very brave at all. Brenda became even more afraid, especially to go anywhere alone anymore. In an interview, Brenda's mom, Elaine, talked about how the things changed following this attempted break-in at their home. How Brenda didn't really want to leave the house as much anymore, not even to go shopping. She really just tried to stay as close to home as much as possible. And she recalled a time when she had gone to the mall to get some new clothes for Brenda And Brenda really didn't like the things her mom had chosen for her. I guess she wasn't too dialed in onto the latest fashion trends of the time. So Elaine went back to the mall and asked the advice of some of the girls who worked in the shops. And they helped her settle on this red pair of pants and a matching red belt. And when she came home with that, Brenda loved them. And she decided to wear them to school the next day. And it would be the last thing Elaine would ever see her daughter wearing. On September 19th, 1985, it's a bit cliche to say, but it was your average day, just like any other. That is until 2.55 p.m. that afternoon. 
Elaine went to make her usual call home to check in on Brenda, and nobody picked up. Her initial feeling was that something wasn't right. She started trying to think about reasons why Brenda wouldn't have picked up the phone, and the thought crossed her mind that she has soccer practice, so maybe she headed over to her teammate's house so they could go to practice together, because Brenda did have that to do that afternoon. Elaine really couldn't do anything about it for the time being. She still had another hour of work to get through, and she could not recall what Brenda's friend's home phone number was. So when four o'clock did roll around, Elaine hurried out of work and headed home. She arrived to find her two boys there, but no Brenda. When they had gotten home, she wasn't there, they said, and they had no idea where she was. But her brothers didn't seem to think that that was out of the ordinary for Brenda. I mean, she was supposed to be there to watch them, but I guess they didn't think much of it. They knew that Brenda had tons of friends, and she was always really busy and social, so they just assumed that Brenda decided to go hang out with them instead of her brothers. Elaine did see the mail sitting on the counter, so she knows at the very least that Brenda made it into the house. So once Elaine ascertained that Brenda was not home, she went back to her car and headed over to Brenda's teammate's house to see if she was there or if they had gone to soccer together. Her teammate was there, but Brenda was not. She hadn't seen her yet that afternoon. So Elaine headed back home and called Dad to tell him that she couldn't find Brenda. He suggested to head over to the park and check and see if she somehow made her way to soccer practice. So Elaine rushed over there, and when the coach saw her walking up, he was like, hey, where's Brenda? Practice was already underway. Elaine asked him, well, isn't she here? Didn't she come with another teammate? Because I don't know where she's at. And he was like, no, she hasn't shown up, and it's not like her. She's always here and on time. So by now, Elaine is beginning to panic. She hurried home again wanting to take another look around the house. She went upstairs, straight into Brenda's bedroom, to see if there was anything in there that could give her any idea of where she may have gone. She glanced around the room, and suddenly she realized that the brand new comforter that Elaine had just purchased for Brenda, it wasn't on her bed. It was nowhere to be found. So she called up Joe again at work and told him, she's gone. She's not at soccer. She's not here. Nobody has seen her, and her comforter is missing. Elaine hung up the phone and called the sheriff. She explained to the sheriff that she couldn't find her daughter. She's 12 years old. She's checked with her friends and her soccer coach, and it didn't seem like she made it much further than the front door. She was asked how long it had been since the last time Brenda had been seen, and Elaine was like, maybe a couple of hours or so. She couldn't be clear the last time she saw her was in the morning. Elaine was told that she had to wait 24 hours before she could report Brenda missing, which is absolutely ridiculous if you ask me. And I know this is 1985, but come on, this is the Pacific Northwest. How many freaking serial killers operated in the area in the past decade or so at the time? We've already talked about the Green River Killer. There's the I-5 Killer, Ted Bundy, 
Richard Marquette. I don't know if the Pacific Northwest necessarily has the most serial killers in terms of region, but between Bundy and Ridgeway alone, they've killed so many young women. How are the police not taking this call seriously from Elaine is beyond me. But thankfully, this 24-hour nonsense is no longer a thing. So about three hours after Brenda was found to be missing, a couple, the Munsons, who lived on the same block as the Garys, knocked on the door. They had just heard about Brenda and wanted to talk to Elaine, but she at first really didn't want to talk. She's in the middle of every parent's worst nightmare. But they explained that they saw something. Something unusual. A strange man that they didn't recognize. Elaine invited them in and they sat down. She explained to them what the police had told her. That Brenda needed to be missing for 24 hours before they would consider her to be at risk of having been kidnapped. Well, Elaine's neighbors had a bit of information that Elaine might want to relay to the sheriffs, so perhaps they could get started on an investigation sooner than that. The couple explained that they noticed a white Toyota that was parked near the bus stop. And there was this huge man, and I mean like super muscular, like a bodybuilder type sitting in the front seat. And the reason they noticed him right away was because he was parked in his car on the street in such a way that was actually blocking the Munson's driveway. They honked at him, but he ignored them at first. However, finally he took the hint and got out of their way, and they watched as he drove down the street a little ways and parked near the bus stop where their children disembark. And Mrs. Munson, her daughter got off at that stop around that time, and she could see that this guy was watching as the children were getting off the bus. So a little later, when the bus Brenda was on arrived at the bus stop, Mr. Munson decided to go and check and see if the man was still there, and he was. And as Mr. Munson watched, he saw this stranger actually following Brenda. So Mr. Munson hung back to wait and make sure he watched Brenda make it into her house. Both he and apparently the stranger, too, watched as Brenda checked the mail and then made her way through the front door. So Mr. Munson was able to confirm for Elaine that Brenda had indeed made it inside the home, which she had already assumed since the mail was on the counter. And feeling as though Brenda would be okay since she was inside her own house, Mr. Munson went home. Upon hearing this information, Elaine decided to visit some of their neighbors to see if anyone else saw anything unusual that afternoon. She found another neighbor who said that he heard something at about 2.50 p.m. He was out in front doing some yard work when he suddenly heard the front door of Elaine's house slam shut, like really hard. And then he heard somebody yell, no. He just assumed it was her kids horsing around and went on with his yard work. Elaine was certain by then that Brenda had been taken, and it had been by that large man in the white Toyota. Joe finally made his way home, and he was like, did you call the police? What did they say? And Elaine had to tell him, they refused to take my report. They said she had to be gone for 24 hours. 
they're not taking this seriously at all. Well, Joe, he wasn't about to wait another 20 hours for someone to do something like this. So he called up the sheriffs himself. He told him, this is not an ordinary runaway. I'm a former deputy and you need to get your people onto this now. My daughter's been abducted. The neighbors saw a man following her and another heard a scream a little while later. You know, dreamers, I started to sit here thinking about Brenda and what happened that afternoon. And I started saying to myself, why didn't the neighbor follow up? Why didn't he confront the guy or why didn't they call police? And then I began thinking about how this kidnapper managed to get inside the Gary home to take Brenda. She seemed so vigilant, especially since that previous incident where a man tried to gain entry into the home under the guise of being a plumber her mom had called. And with all the news that had been concerning her about the Green River Killer. But then I had to stop myself. This isn't the neighbor's fault. There isn't something that Brenda did wrong. Only one person here was wrong. But still, if my dreamers listening are thinking the same thing, I was thinking it too. Brenda's little brothers didn't know what to think. Their minds went straight to the Green River Killer too. We now know that was Gary Ridgway, but at the time he was some phantom killing young girls and women and dumping them up and down the river. And of course, this is scaring them to death, mom included, because if it was the Green River Killer, they knew for sure that Brenda was dead. There was no way she was going to come back from that. Now, the one thing Mr. Munson did do that was super helpful is that he took down the license plate of the white Toyota, and Joe was able to turn that information over to investigators. They had radioed that back to another pair of detectives, and they immediately headed over to the address on file for the registered owner of that vehicle. They were there on his doorstep the same night, within eight hours of Brenda having gone missing. His name was Michael Green. And at the time, he was unemployed. Let's pause here and discuss who Michael Green is. The following information about Green I obtained from an April 1993 article in the Seattle Times by Jolene Houts. Green was kind of a big kid in high school. Tall, about 6 foot 3 or 1.9 meters tall. Athletic and he used his size to make a splash on his high school football team. But when he graduated from high school and showed up to play football for the University of Washington in the fall of 1971, he had gone from a slim 170 pounds or 77 kilograms to a whopping 240 pounds or 108 kilograms, and that was just in a little more than three months' time. He went on to earn a football scholarship and he lettered three years in a row. Of course, those who interacted with him on the field were curious as to the massive weight gain. And it was all muscle. Their minds, of course, go straight to steroid use. There did not seem any plausible way the guy could gain that much muscle that fast, naturally. And to be honest, I don't even know if it's possible. 
Now, Green himself would say everything was all natural in high school and college. He would later claim that he never used steroids. But when he joined up in the bodybuilding circuit in 1983, he says that he did use anabolic steroids as a part of his training. Now, the author of this article suggested that there are some who think that the steroids had an impact on what Green would eventually go on to do in life, that he had once been an ambitious person with a bright future who suddenly embarked on a violent crime spree in the beginning of July of 1985. Green himself would later on blame steroids for the path that he ended up on in life, but I will come back to that. Michael Green had been adopted and with the nature of his father's job as a contract manager with the Pentagon, they moved about the country as his job transferred him. The family ended up in Seattle at the time Green was finishing up high school. Those who knew of Ned said he was much more mature than most of his peers. He was always a pretty serious guy, very focused. Green said that he was a lanky kid, having reached his full height as a teen He was only 150 pounds or 68 kilograms at the time. He suffered from asthma and basically got bullied by his classmates. That was the catalyst for pushing himself to bulk up. His dad was friends with the football coach at Washington and was able to pull some strings to get him a tryout. By the following year, he had earned the scholarship. Green wasn't the best athlete on the field, but he definitely worked out harder and longer than most of his teammates, and he always preferred to work out alone. When everyone would be in the weight room, lifting and talking or whatever, Green, he would be doing solitary workouts, running upstairs, punching the heavy bag. He was very much into maintaining his physique. And an odd side note, Michael Green was somewhat avant-garde when it came to writing. He loved football and working out, but he had a passion for experimental postmodern writing and poetry, particularly when it came to the mislaid American dream and social issues and the constructs of the modern day. He did have a desire to enter into the 1976 NFL draft, but he always said that writing would be his preference when it came to career pursuits. He did graduate from Washington State, earning his bachelor's in English. Now, Green had always maintained that his interest in playing in the NFL was minimal, at best. But he did enter the draft, and he wasn't chosen. And he took it pretty hard. Which I thought was kind of interesting because, I mean, he always said it wasn't his primary goal in life. But I guess when it comes to playing professional sports, if you go undrafted then it's sort of like the whole entire league telling you that you're not good enough. He tried joining the NFL as an undrafted free agent, but that didn't pan out either. So as much as Green has said football wasn't his goal, he did not take well to the rejections. Around the same time, Green did get married to a young woman that he had been living with, but the marriage barely made it to a year, breaking up shortly thereafter. So once the NFL passed him up, in 1977, he landed a job in the banking industry with Household Financial Corporation, and he ended up leaving that job for an opportunity at Olympic Bank as a loan officer. He got married for a second time in 1979 to a woman named Diane Pittman, 
But by 1981, hard times had hit and Green was laid off. He soon found another job working for Snap-on Tools. In 1982, Green accepted a job transfer that took him and his wife to Phoenix, Arizona, and that's when he became interested in powerlifting and bodybuilding, which is what led him to begin using the anabolic steroids to further his muscle development. According to Green, he had begun working out with professional athletes, but which pro athletes those were, he didn't say. But he did say that is how he became introduced to steroids. Before long, he was dropping about $200 a month on the steroids. Eventually, he was taking larger and larger doses of a variety of different types of steroids. And according to people who knew him, they began to see a change in his personality. Prior to Green's steroid use, there had been no indication that Green exhibited any propensity for violence. He had never been in trouble with the law, and he had never been known to be anything more than a quiet, unassuming guy, despite his imposing size and build. But once he began using steroids on a regular basis, Green seemed to grow more cantankerous, belligerent, and reckless. His mood went from hot to cold to hot again without warning. And he seemed to have developed this self-aggrandizing way about him that was really off-putting. People at work would keep their distance from him. As he was in charge of a small staff, he managed with a style that was hostile and irrational, which are conditions I imagine are very difficult to work under. A former employee who spoke with the Seattle Times who wanted to remain anonymous said, quote, He threatened to drop kick us out of the office. He once threw a computer off the desk, not bumped it, but threw it, and told us to say it fell accidentally after one of the girls put some folders on his desk and didn't move them right away. And then Green entered himself into the Mr. Arizona contest and apparently did not do very well. He would end up venting his frustrations by acting out even worse at work and at home with his wife. Again, not handling rejection well at all. And it seemed as though this was about the time that things really began going downhill for Green. In 1984, he was arrested on domestic violence charges when he slapped his wife Diana and broke her nose. He pleaded guilty in that case. Diana's co-workers told the Seattle Times that they often noticed injuries on Diana that she had no real explanation for. Eventually, that anonymous co-worker of Green's reached a point where she simply could not take his behavior anymore as it was crossing lines that were really inappropriate. So she filed a grievance accusing Green of sexual harassment. The decision was made to terminate him immediately and they called the police to stand by as he was told to clear his desk. As he walked out, he threatened the supervisor and as he walked by the employee who reported him, he glared at her, and then he quietly left. For quite some time afterwards, she kept a gun in her purse out of fear that Green might try to retaliate. Unemployed, he and Diana moved back to Muckleteo, Washington, and in with her parents. So... He was still unable to find work, but he kept up with his bodybuilding pursuits, and he thought that maybe he could find work as a personal trainer. 
He again entered another bodybuilding contest and spent about six months training hard for that, but he placed in fourth. And again, it was another devastating blow to him. And we're beginning to see a pattern here, even from back in high school and college, that Michael Green was never a standout athlete. He was always on the periphery, but not for lack of trying. He seemed to push himself hard to excel, but at the same time, he was the type of guy who wanted to take shortcuts. And it sounds like he kind of had an edgy vibe that people found off-putting. And no matter how big or muscular or well-toned he became, he was always going to lack what it took to make it to the top. And it sounds kind of like a personality flaw that there really is no easy fix for. Something inside him that's just disconnected. Something he might not even know how to fix even if he wanted to. He was never going to come in first place. And life kept reminding him of that time and time again. He fell into this cycle, he said, that steroids caused. All he could do was eat, work out, and eat again. He literally had no energy or motivation to get out there and look for steady work. So by the spring of 1985, Green decided to try to get off the steroids, which led to withdrawal symptoms that caused him to sink even deeper into a depression, though I don't know if he actually was ever diagnosed or if that's just how he labeled how he was feeling. Unable to cope with the withdrawal and in an effort to minimize his body aches and pains from working out, which he was still doing incessantly, by the end of August, Green started up with the steroids again. And that is when he embarked on a nine-week-long violent crime spree. On July 22, 1985, Michael Green was accused of accosting a woman who was jogging near Edmonds College. She picked Green out in a lineup, but he would eventually be acquitted at trial. And once Green was arrested for this crime, his family, the parents who had adopted him, and his brother cut off all contact with him. When a reporter requested an interview with them about Michael Green, they told the reporter, we don't know anybody named Michael Green. The only person who maintained a relationship with him was his sister who had been adopted along with him. On August 13, 1985, Green attacked and raped a female jogger on the same trail near Edmonds College. He was later convicted of first-degree rape. One month and six days later, on September 19th, Brenda Gary disappeared. Four days after that, on September 23rd, Green attacked a University of Washington student at knife point, but threw her down an embankment when she began screaming. He was later convicted of first-degree robbery. And this was the incident where he obtained the car so he could flee the state. The next day on the 24th, Green accosted a woman in a parking lot in Bellevue, Washington, punching her in the face. He later pleaded guilty to assault. The same day, he robbed a woman in a flower shop at Knife Point in the next state over in Boise, Idaho. A warrant for his arrest was issued, but the case was never officially solved. That same day on the 25th, Green robbed a flower shop in Pocatello, Idaho, using a knife. He later pled guilty to grand theft. 
So state hopping again into Utah this time, he allegedly robbed a real estate agent at Knife Point. Again, a warrant for his arrest was filed, but that too was never resolved. I suppose by this time, Green is realizing he really sucks at being a criminal as he's getting caught for nearly everything that he did. Unfortunately, he managed to sidestep being connected to Brenda's disappearance, at least for a while. So back to Brenda. Detectives who had obtained Michael Green's information from the neighbors who noticed his vehicle parked near Brenda's bus stop showed up at Green's house. They knocked on the door and asked to speak to him. He was still living there with wife Diana Pittman and her parents. So whoever it was that answered the door told the officers to hang on. And apparently they stood out there on the front porch for about a half hour waiting for him to come to the door. They didn't have a warrant to search the house, so there really wasn't anything that they could do. And they're out there thinking, what the heck is this guy doing inside? And could he possibly be hiding Brenda inside this house? It was pretty nerve-wracking. So Green finally appeared at the door, and they explained to him that a young girl went missing earlier that day, and some witnesses said that they saw him sitting in his truck on the same street. What were you doing over there? Green came up with some answer like he and his wife were thinking about moving to the area and that he was scoping the place out, checking out the homes to see if he liked anything. He and his wife wanted to buy a house and he turned to his wife and said, isn't that right? And she said yes. She'd even added that they'd been over there a couple times together. And Green asked, what is this all about? And the officers explained, that a girl went missing at Bothell and they were just following up on some information from witnesses. He somewhat feigned concern and the detectives requested to take a look at his car to which he obliged. But it was pretty obvious that there was not a speck of dust to be found inside or out of Green's vehicle. So they asked him, you just had your car cleaned? And he was like, yep, I always take care of my stuff. And the detectives just had to leave. They really had nothing other than the fact that he was parked on the street. There was nothing they could see on him or in his car that indicated anything nefarious had taken place. Other than a gut feeling that they were looking right at the man who they suspected abducted Brenda. They had nothing. So they just had to leave. Now Elaine, as you can imagine, is beside herself just so fearful of what's happening with Brenda. But the one thing she isn't thinking is that Brenda's dead. Her thought process is, if someone took Brenda, they're not going to want to kill her because she's no good to anyone anymore. She's thinking Brenda is alive somewhere and that she was trafficked, something like that. But she's not accepting that Brenda was dead. So the detectives called Elaine to give her the update that Green has an alibi that he was in the area house shopping and his wife corroborated his story. So the next step was to canvass the area within two to three mile radius of the Gary home to talk to everybody that they can to search the woods, any place they could think of where someone might have left Brenda. But Elaine was going to continue to hope and pray that she was still alive, so much so that she even tried using her family dog and commanded that he go find Brenda 
you know, where's Brenda? Go find her. And this is what Elaine was doing around 3 in the morning the same night that Brenda went missing. Wandering around her neighborhood, asking her dog to find Brenda. And the dog actually led Elaine to the neighbor who said he was out doing yard work when he heard the Gary's front door slam at 2.50 in the afternoon that day that Brenda went missing. So Elaine started thinking, maybe he knows more than he's letting on, because why is the dog going right to his house? She's thinking, he puts himself right there, you know, right at the moment that it happened. But what if it's all just a cover-up? Elaine doesn't know. They'd only moved to the neighborhood a couple months earlier. They really don't know their neighbors that well yet. And then Joe, he's suspicious of them too. And he's somewhat upset with the Munsons for not reacting with more urgency when they saw Green lurking around in his car watching the kids. And Joe also began blaming himself. That day that Brenda went missing, that was supposed to be Joe's day off work. He was supposed to have been home, but he was called in and decided to go. And he couldn't let that go. He couldn't forgive himself for not staying home that day. So in order to cope with the guilt, he started drinking heavily. Joe had already been somewhat of a social drinker, maybe a little bit more than that. But after Brenda went missing, he constantly drank himself until he was numb to it all. And then, of course, this is affecting everyone in the family and the search for Brenda, as his drinking rendered him virtually useless in their efforts to track her down. And Elaine is really carrying the burden for everybody here. She's doing everything she can to be the strength for them, especially for her boys. And the fact was, Joe really had no hope that they were going to find Brenda alive. So he gave up. And Elaine was made to carry this for the both of them. The search for Brenda was immense. The headquarters for the search party was the Gary home and leads and tips were coming in by the hundreds. The community had really come together to try and do their part to bring Brenda home. And Elaine herself would say, contrary to Joe's ways of dealing with their daughter's disappearance, her way of coping was to just focus on working and working the leads. In every lead she had, she'd relay everything to the police. But she did as much as she could within her capacity because she really didn't think anyone out there would do as much for as long and as thorough as she would. It was her child that was missing. Nobody else was going to be on this like her. And don't forget, in the midst of all this, the Green River Killer is still doing his thing. And during the early stages of the search for Rinda, another report hit the airwaves of another body found that was believed to have been the work of the serial killer. Now, yes, they do have a person of interest in Michael Green, but they don't know who he is, and he could very well be the Green River Killer himself for all they knew. But that continued to remain one of Elaine's biggest fears, that Brenda had fallen victim to the Green River Killer. So when she heard the news that a body was discovered, she became paralyzed with fear. And she just sat there and waited for that phone call. The phone did ring that afternoon. It was the detective to reassure Elaine that the body found was not Brenda's. Months began to pass with still no information about Brenda's whereabouts. The leads had begun to dry up. The search parties disbanded. 
and Brenda's family were just left having to wait and wonder and hope. Three months in, and everything had been a dead end. So one of Elaine's friends brought over a psychic. And we've talked about this before, back when we did our vacation series on the Cleveland kidnapping survivors, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus. I talked a little bit about psychic Sylvia Brown and how the general consensus is she sort of preyed on grieving families and their vulnerability and their desperation. I had some listeners defend the use of psychics, pointing out that when there is nothing else to go on, that sometimes a psychic can bring about a different direction investigators hadn't thought of. So I've chosen to remain neutral on the topic. In listening to Brenda's mom speak about the torment of not knowing, reaching that point of desperation to have anything tangible to work with, if the psychic genuinely wants to try and help, then fine. I don't think that they should go on TV, and I don't think that they should exploit families or charge them any money. If a psychic wants to help, then just help. I suppose it can't hurt. So Elaine is visited by the psychic, and according to Elaine, she had a good reputation, and she had some measure of success in leading to the recovery of missing children, so she's interested in seeing if she can help. She requested to hold a piece of clothing that belonged to Brenda. She sat there for a moment and then had a vision that Brenda was being held captive at a farmhouse down south from where they were located, close to the Washington-Oregon border, and the kidnappers were two men. So based on the information Elaine was able to get from the psychic, she called the sheriff. And I don't know if she told the sheriff she got her information from a psychic or not, Maybe not because she didn't want them to think that she was sending them on some sort of wild goose chase, but she told them that she believed Brenda was being held at a farmhouse in Oregon. She described the area and the house based on what the psychic had told her. He said he would follow up with law enforcement down there and see if they could have it checked out, which they did, and they seemed to be familiar with the farmhouse Elaine had described, so they visited and they found an elderly couple living there. And they really had no information or related in any way to Brenda's case. So it was another disappointing dead end for Elaine. And then suddenly, shortly after the psychic fail, Michael Green suddenly skipped town. And this pretty much solidified Elaine's belief that he was responsible for Brenda's disappearance. And you know this guy... He's basically a loser with no job and no car, so in order to get out of town, he accosted a woman and threw her out of her car and stole it and robbed it and fled. The Garys followed up with the detectives again, and they said they believed him to be in and around the Colorado Springs area. They have an all-points bulletin out for the stolen car. If nothing else, they can get him on those charges. He assured Joe and Elaine that as soon as they have any new information, he'd call them first. The one good thing about Michael Green crossing state lines was that the FBI was now called in to assist in the investigation, which would be a huge boost for the sheriff's department. And they came in, but unfortunately, months after her abduction, they weren't sure that they'd be able to find anything inside the Gary's home to link Michael Green to the crime. They were looking for anything, prints, hairs, fibers, blood, anything of forensic value, and there simply wasn't anything. 
So about six months after Brenda vanished, Elaine, desperate for anything at this point, decided to try and give the wife, Diana, a call. She was so convinced that her husband was responsible for Brenda's disappearance that she wanted to, in some way, try to get her to become convinced of it, too. She had this plan. She was going to call her up and tell her a lie. She told Diana that she knows her husband was inside her home. She knows he was there. The FBI found his hair and his fingerprints. And she knows that he has information about Brenda. If he has her, then she needs to tell her where she can find Brenda. But Diana... I don't know if she's in complete denial or if she truly believes that her husband isn't involved, but she told Elaine that there was no way that her husband would do such a thing that he loves and cares for children. I'm also not sure if Diana was aware of the crime spree and all the violent incidents involving the women that he was convicted of. I can't imagine she didn't know, but you never know, I guess. About two weeks passed, and it was then Diana received a call from Michael Green. He explained that he was in Denver, not sure of what his next move was going to be. She informed him, You know they've got physical evidence linking you to the inside of the Gary house, hair and fingerprints and stuff. And she reminded him that a part of his alibi was that she was with him, supposedly house hunting, in the neighborhood where Brenda went missing on the day she went missing, and she knows that she wasn't with him. She wants to know the truth. He admitted to his wife that he was inside the house, but he didn't do anything. He had nothing to do with Brenda's disappearance, and he followed that up with demanding that she not say anything to anyone about this. She tried to encourage him to go see police so he could explain himself and clear his name. So he actually did. He ended up going back to Washington and talking to police. He was read his rights and waived all of them, insisting he wanted to explain and clear up any misunderstandings. He said that he was in the neighborhood looking at houses, and when he came across the Gary house, he wanted to see if anybody was home so he could ask some questions about the neighborhood. Then he said he stepped inside, and he looked around, but the place was empty, so he left. Of course, police are not really buying this story, But he is placing himself inside the house and it's obvious he's doing so to try to explain away physical evidence linking him to the crime scene. During the course of the interview, another detective was going through some files from some recent sexual assaults and they found one woman who had been raped and her description of her attacker closely matched Green's physical description. Really big and really muscular. So they rushed over to her with a photo lineup and sure enough, she was able to identify Michael Green as her attacker. So for now, they had a pretty serious charge to hold him on while they continued to try and work Brenda's case. Michael Green was taken into custody and charged with the sexual assault of that woman and he would go on to be convicted and sentenced to seven years. So for the time being, he would be locked up but they still weren't any closer to figuring out what happened to Brenda, and more importantly, where she was at. Michael Green was not saying anything about it. In the meantime, the Garys decided that they needed to get out of Bothell, get away from that house and that area, and the bad memories. So they moved to Idaho, but it did little to ease the pain and guilt Brenda's dad Joe had been dealing with. 
Not knowing what happened to her was more than he could take. And by April of 1988, about two and a half years since Brenda vanished, it seems as though he was trying to drink himself to death, but it wasn't working all that well. And then one day, Elaine's middle son came into the house and said that dad had just downed an entire bottle of vodka and it wasn't even lunchtime yet. And dad was really drunk and he was headed out into the woods. Elaine tried to follow him out there and try talking to him, but he was completely gone. He pulled out a gun and aimed it at Elaine, told her to stay away, and suddenly put it up to his head and pulled the trigger. All the while, his wife and his two sons looked on. About six years after Brenda disappeared, Elaine moved with her boys to Carson City, Nevada in order to be closer to where her mom lived. By this time, she had been receiving about one phone call a year from the detective on Brenda's case to provide her with an update if there was one. And year after year, all they could say was they didn't have enough to make the charges against Greenstick. They've not forgotten Brenda. They'll keep working it. And then in 1991, Elaine received a phone call from her detective with the news that she had been waiting for all these years. They'd found Brenda's remains. And she was only two miles from Michael Green's house. They had her blanket, her red pants, and a scattering of bones. Men working in the area spotted what looked like a human femur, and from there, the dirt was sifted through the entire area, finding bones strewn about, and then her skull was found, which had a clear indication that she had suffered a blunt force trauma type of injury. Investigators theorized that Michael Green had gained entry into the Gary home and quickly incapacitated Brenda with a blow to the head wrapped her up in her own comforter, and carried her out of the house. Michael Green was charged with the first-degree murder of Brenda Geary. In a television interview, Elaine described the final moments of the prosecution's presentation to the jury. In life, this was Brenda Sue Geary, and he held up a poster-sized picture of the little girl cuddling her kitten. This was Brenda Sue Geary, and on that day, September 19, 1985, she so happened to cross paths with the boogeyman. After she met the boogeyman, this is what she looked like in death. And he held up a poster-sized picture of Brenda's bones, what was left of them, arranged on the medical examiner's table. After they met, this is what the boogeyman did to her. Michael Green was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, no possibility of parole, and he still continues to sit in prison today. Once the trial was over, the family that was left, Elaine and her two boys, Joey and Mike, they brought Brenda's remains down from Washington here to California, and she was laid to rest in the same plot as her father was laid to rest in three years earlier. And that is the grave site that we visited last weekend on September 21st. It had only been two days after the 34th anniversary of Brenda's abduction. Some of you may have seen the live video that I made. I have a couple of pictures I'll post as well once I get this episode up for you guys. 
This episode, of course, is for Brenda and for her family, but it is also for her childhood friend, Millicent, who really never had the chance to say goodbye all those years ago, which is the purpose of this and our visit to Brenda and Joe's burial site. I had the pleasure of speaking to Millicent a couple of weeks ago about this story and her friendship with Brenda, but for whatever reason, my equipment wasn't working properly and I wasn't able to record the conversation the way I wanted to. So the audio turned out to not be all that great. You can hear me just fine, but Millicent, she sounds far away. So all I can do is tack our interview on to the end of this so you have the option to listen if you want to, which I hope you do. That's not that long, but it might be a pain to try and hear. So my apologies for that. My apologies to you, Millicent, for not getting it right. I don't know what went wrong, but I can't do anything about that now. I want to thank Millicent for taking the time to help me get to know Brenda and her story. Some of the details in the timeline of the events are from the Investigation Discovery series entitled Suspicion, The Boogeyman. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. Hi, dreamers. Today I have a very special story to share with you. We are going to discuss the 1985 kidnapping and murder of a 12-year-old girl in the state of Washington. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. Many of you know her from the Facebook group. She recently gained a little bit more prominence in the last month and a half or so since the news of plagiarism has broken. She's taken a strong and open stance against shows that have been shown to, in some way, shape, or form, copy the work and research of other podcasts and journalists, sometimes word for word, sometimes even turning the personal experiences, understandings, insights, and acumens of others and claiming it as their own. She is a listener who took a stand for us and continues to speak out against the practices of plagiarism and the willingness of some to look past it because it's not a big deal or everyone is doing it, so who cares? She has been with California Dreaming, I want to say from the very beginning, and I'd like to... (laughs) I'd like to thank her very, very much for taking the time to speak to me tonight about this case that she has a personal connection to. Millicent, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Rosie. I really appreciate it. Sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and a bit about your background. Okay. Well... (laughs) As you heard Roseanne say, my name is Millicent, but most people call me Millie. I'm originally from Washington State, um, Seattle to be precise. Well, actually Ravensdale, but nobody's ever heard of that, so I always used to cheat and say I was from Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I happen to have born, been born with cerebral palsy, but the 12-year-old girl that Roseanne spoke of was my classmate, and her name was Brenda Geary, and we were, we were classmates in school for two years in a row, from fourth to sixth grade, and the Brenda that I remember was very bubbly, she, she 
she was she was kind of tall for her age that I remember, but of course everyone was going to be taller tall to me because I was I'm always sitting in a wheelchair, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but she had brunette hair. It was a little bit past her shoulders, and um, she was one of those bubbly kids that were always always making friends easily but like but like most kids she had she had a group of friends that she hung out with all the time um she was always very creative always kind of not the life of the party but she always wanted to join in and she always had ways of making recess and playtime fun for everybody and um, pretty much if you were a friend, you were a friend for life. Right. Okay. I'm going to pause right here real quick just to make sure that this is recording okay. Gotcha. Okay. So before we get back into Brenda and all of that, I want to find out a little bit more about how you came to discover and begin listening to podcasts. Well... <laughs> I spend an awful lot of time on the internet, um, and when podcasts very first started, um, I didn't listen to all that many uh, because, as you know, there was a there was a time when it started to take off, but then it didn't take in, get any traction. And then, about maybe I want to say three years ago, my I found my Gateway podcast. It was not a true crime podcast. It was a podcast called The List. And then um, I I started searching for other kinds of podcasts, and I sort of and I sort of latched on to true crime because I've all I've always liked hearing stories about people and their lives, and I particularly was interested. Not necessarily in uh, the gory details of a crime, but what? But rather, what would make a person, you know, particularly one who had no record, no nothing, not even a speeding ticket before, all of a sudden snap and do something heinous, like a murder or a rape or et cetera, et cetera. Right. And as I started listening to different podcasts, such as True Crime Fan Club and other podcasts like that, I started hearing about other podcasts, and George was one of them. And so I figured I'd give that a listen, and you were just starting out, <laughs> I think it's it's been what three years now, Roseanne. We're in our sec into our second year. We're almost um, a little more than two years. Feels like three, yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah, it does. But yeah, I I found you through word of mouth, like I found all other podcasts. And then as as podcasts started getting discussion groups going, I just became active in those. And I actually didn't realize how well known I'd gotten in the true crime community until I 
until I went to the True Crime Podcast of the last July in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were yeah. pretty well known, yeah. <laughs> yeah, somebody, somebody, well, lady from from True Crime Fan Club tried to, you know, tried to tell me that. And I thought she was just being nice, as you do. <laughs> but it, I hit that door and I was just about mobbed. And it took about two seconds for me to realize Lainey wasn't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, she and wasn't. Then, I saw um, all the pictures, too. I, yeah, I tagged you on them. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, of course, the plagiarism hit, and that <laughs> increased my notoriety even more, which, again, I did not expect. Right, right. So, um, now, like you said, we all know about the plagiarism stuff going on here, and there isn't really any need to go into what shows, you know, that have been hit by yeah. this Um or for whatever reasons, other controversial hosts that, you know, are out there. We don't have to get into that. But what I do want to know, or what are some of your longtime favorite podcasts that you must listen to every single week or every two weeks, depending on their release? What are your favorite shows? Esther Ludlow, of course, is one. Uh, Once Upon a Crime. Yours, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um... True Crime Fan Club is another is another big one. Mm-hmm. I always look forward to Lainey's episodes. Um, but my new one of my new favorite ones is called True Crime Fix. It's a British podcast. It's based in Britain, and Steve does an absolutely awesome job. Oh, I haven't heard of that one yet. Give it a listen. I will. Thank you. Thanks for the recommend. You are welcome. Okay. So the case we're talking about today, there is a California connection, and it's my understanding that Brenda's family was originally from California. Her, her parents, her mother was, her mother is from Fontana, California, and her father Joe moved from, I believe, I want to say Virginia or someplace like that to Fontana. Mm-hmm, that's how they met. Um, right. What I want is for you to just talk about your friend, tell us about your experience and knowing her, and I'm going to try to stay quiet as possible, and it's not easy for me because I like to interrupt sometimes, but um, <laughs> I'm, I, I just want to let you talk about Brenda, so the floor is okay. open to you, so tell us about Brenda Sue. As I said, Brenda, Brenda was my classmate for two years. Um she was always very bubbly, um, always had very, cre- she was very creative, always, always one who spoke up and spoke up in class and pretty much everybody loved getting out with her. I, um, she, she was never mean to me, but because I'm in a chair, I was kind of on the outside looking in. So I was kind of, I would watch and observe everything. I, um, but she was always very nice, very bubbly. She was very active in sports. I believe soccer was one of her favorites. Um, she had moved away from, she was still in Washington, but by sixth grade, she had moved to a different district, so I lost touch with her. Mm-hmm. But pretty much, I mean, if you, if you saw her and you, and you were in class with her, you, you never really forgot her. It was just, 
it was one of those things where she moved away from the from the district, so she and I wound up losing touch. And actually, once she moved, I didn't hear from her again until the night of her kidnap, her abduction. Mm-hmm. And I found that out. I found that out through a newscast, believe it or not. <laughs> well, it's my understanding that her family left the area where she was living in, which I believe was Kent, Washington. Correct. And she moved up to another town a little bit of about 20 miles north or so of Seattle. Yeah, it was called Bothell. Yeah. And um, the reason her her mom said I, that I saw in an interview that they moved was because of Gary Ridgway. The, right. The Green River Killer was active during that time. Right. And um, her father, Brenda's father, Joe, was a former sheriff's deputy in California. So security and safety for all of his children was paramount for him. Right. Always. Right. The irony of all this is definitely not lost on me. Right. That they moved to be safer and it ended up not being the case. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about uh, how it was you came to find out you were watching the news and you saw that um, Brenda had been abducted. Actually, it was parents and I, we were watching the news because it was dinner hour and it was, we, um, we had it, we made it sort of a routine to watch the news while we were having dinner and all of a sudden I heard the newscaster say um, Brenda's name but they mispronounced her last name but I do but I'm thinking I wonder if it was I was thinking I wonder if it was Brenda and I, I wonder if it was Brenda they're talking about sure enough I saw her picture and remember at the time I was 11 years old so I didn't have the vocabulary or the words, you know, to say, but I kept looking at it. I kept looking at the picture go, and it was kind of one of those cases where I'm going, am I seeing what I, what I think I'm seeing? And it took me a few minutes, but I realized that I was in fact seeing Brenda. And I looked at my mom and I said, and I remember I said, mom, I reckon that that's, that's Brenda, that's one of my former classmates. And I remember I asked my mom if I could call one of her former teachers at the time to let her know what was happening and see if I could get some more information. Thank goodness my mom gave me permission to do so. And I got a hold of Deborah Simmons, our our former fifth grade teacher. Unfortunately, I was the one that told her. I I called her thinking she already knew, but she didn't know. Mm. And I was the one that had to kind of drop that news on her. And she told me that she would call Brenda's mom and call me right back. She did about 15 minutes later, and that was when she told me that it was, in fact, Brenda that I was seeing. Right. And, um... How long between the time that she, you last saw her to the time that you saw her on the news? How much time had passed? 
I want to say, gosh, um, I want to say it had it had been several months because I um, the last time I saw her was the end of the end of this grade when school let out for the summer. You know, but none of us knew she was going to move back. You know, she was going to move away from the area. You know, right. So some time had passed from the time yes. that she was kidnapped. Her case actually went cold. It did. It did. Um, and actually, for a while, um, particularly when when it first hit the news, my first thought was that perhaps the Green River Killer had gotten her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, it turned out not to be the case. But for a while... That was what I was afraid of. She didn't exactly fit the profile of the Green River Killer's uh, victims, no. though. That's correct. She, she did not. But that's just where my 11-year-old head went to at the time. Right. You know, that was, you know. Were you, you hear about active cases, right. you know. At the time, were you aware of the enormity of what the Green River Killer actually was and what he was doing in your area? He was very prominently featured in the news, so I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't realize exactly, I didn't realize just how many people had had been affected or harmed by him but I knew that he was very prominently featured I did not I didn't hear anything about prostitutes or anything like that I was just constantly hearing you know stay safe use the buddy system etc etc so at the time I thought he could have been just snatching anybody whether it be an adult or a child or a teenager anything like that I you know, I didn't realize that there was a specific profile to him at the time. So Brenda's case did grow cold. Did you keep your eye on it over those years as you became a teenager? And it took some time for them to recover her remains and for her killer to be identified. And he was largely identified with circumstantial evidence. I mean, did you follow this the whole time? I I followed it as much as I could. Um, I know that once the media, you know, as you know, the media tends to jump on a case and then go off of it uh, if it if the case gets cold. And by 1991, I had moved out of state, but I was still in touch with Deborah Simmons and I'd moved to Minnesota at that time and she was kind enough um well her remains were found shortly before I moved so I I saw that news story and then um the trial started by the time I you know by the time I was in Minnesota but I was in touch with different people and she sent me all of the newspaper articles and kept me abreast of what was going on because she was in court every single day and, in fact, had also been taking part in the search for her remains. So um, 
um, Brenda's killer, his name was Michael K. Green. And yes. was he incarcerated at the time her remains were found? Yes, he was. He was a, he was incarcerated on an unrelated charge, I believe. It was another rape. Um, yes, he was a rapist. Mm-hmm. And he was connected to her case mostly by eyewitnesses placing him sitting in his car. And he was out there trolling for little girls getting off the school bus, right? Correct, yes. And there were some witnesses that had heard a scream that it was very quick because Brenda very, was not Brenda was not home alone for very long. She would get home, she would wait for her brothers, they would get home soon too, and then shortly after that her mom would get home. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, she had a soccer game the day that she was abducted. So she had told her mother, you know, remember, come straight home from work. Right. And, yeah. And her mom got home and just her her little brothers were sitting there. And she's like, where's Brenda? They're like, we don't know. She wasn't here when we got here. And that's where it all started. Yes. And as a matter of fact, um, the only way they knew that, well, the other, well, of course there was that way. But Elaine had stopped in Brenda's bedroom and nothing was out of place. But then she happened to look and see that the rainbow bread spread bedspread that she kept on her bed was missing that's right that's right he had he was so fast and he saw her get off the bus he, i wonder if he had been noticing her before knowing that she, there was a short hour or so before her brothers would be around that she got to her house she'd check her mail she'd go inside she'd do her homework she'd watch her soap opera and he knew in that short time that she would be available to him. Right. My guess has always been that he that he was watching. Yeah. Somewhere. Neighbors. I don't know where and I don't know how. That's how he was identified though. Someone some yeah. um observant neighbor took down his license plate number, but that's all yep. they really had was his yes, car. Exactly. And his wife for a while backed him up. A very long while she backed him up, yes. He uh, he had become a he was a bodybuilder, and he was doing steroids at the time. So he was a very big, very powerful, physically powerful individual at the time. Right. So Brenda basically had no chance because she was she was a strong little girl, but she was very she was skinny. Yeah. You know, she, there was no way she could have fought back against someone with that much muscle power. Especially if he took her by surprise, because she did have access to a loaded pistol in her house. Yes, and and her father had, you know, had taught her defensive tech. You know, tech, he had done all of the right things. He had um, he had taught her what to do. Um, if she were ever in a situation that was dangerous, but she was caught by surprise. So there was no way that, you know, her instincts and everything she was taught didn't have time even to kick in, I don't think. Did 
Did um, he ever confess to it, or has he just denied it? No. No. Okay. No, he has not confessed to it, um, at least as far as I know. Um, <clears throat> I know I read in an interview that took place in 1993 that um, he... He pretty much expected to get what he got, but he is maintaining his, his innocence. Right. Um, there's not a lot. There's not a whole lot in the way of evidence against him, except the circumstances of him having been there and his history of violence. Yes. And all, but they did all. They, they were able to also, I believe, find DNA on her on what they on when they found her remains. I mean, there wasn't much left, mm-hmm. but there was clothes, there was a little bit of clothing left. Right. So, were you, you were, you were already out of state by this time? Did you go yes, to the, sur- you didn't attend her funeral? I, I couldn't. I was, you know, this might sound tacky, you know, what I'm going to say next, and I certainly don't mean to, um, I don't mean to imply that what everybody who attended her funeral went through wasn't difficult because I know I know that it was. But for me especially, um, there was and there has been um, no sense of closure for me because I was not able to attend the trial. I was not able to attend the memorial. Um, I, I was able to talk to Brenda's mother during the time of the trial, um, and that made me feel a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know where she and Brenda's brothers are now. But I think I think of them often, and I really, really hope that they're doing as well as they can. Um, so we talked about this before when you first brought this case up to me. Has it been covered on another podcast? Yes, it has. Um, Erica of Apex and the Abyss covered it two years ago. Okay. Perfect. She's she's awesome. Yes, she is. Mm-hmm. I, I really like her a lot. I, I had a chance to meet her and so many other podcasters in July of last year. But yeah. really... Roseanne, I, I do have to say that Michael Green does not only have Brenda's blood on his hands. He has the blood of Brenda's father as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Brenda was Joe and Elaine Gary's oldest child and her only daughter. And Joe and Brenda were particularly tight. They had a father-daughter bond that was just incredible. And it drove him absolutely insane that, you know, number one, that this happened to his daughter, and number two, that, you know, it seemed to him that nothing was getting done. I mean, they were doing everything they could, but... It just got too much for him, and he became an alcoholic, and unfortunately, he chose to commit suicide, and unfortunately, he did it in front of his family. Right. Yeah. 
I, I, I saw that detail and that he had spent most of the day. I don't judge him for taking himself out. I, I understand how and why that happened. The only thing I do wish is that he wouldn't have, if he was going to do it, I wish he wouldn't have done it where his family could see it. I wish he could have understood and felt that this wasn't his fault. There is only one person responsible for Brenda's death. Right. But I believe, as any parent does, but if, I think for I think it hit him doubly hard because not only was he not, well, in his eyes, not only was he not there to protect his daughter, but... He was thinking, as a sheriff's deputy, I should have been more aware. I should have been more uh, vigilant. Um, I mean, you and I and and everyone who listens to this could can say, can say, you know, he couldn't have done anything more than what he did. But for him, even though Elaine would try to tell him, there was no talking him down. No talking him down. Right. So we also talked about this um, some time ago when we first discussed getting together and talking about Brenda, that she and her father are actually buried here in California. Yes. Um, she, her bro- Brenda's brothers and Elaine drove around, uh, Brenda's, re- Brenda's remains to California af- after Joe's, after she was found and... After Joe was buried, they she they buried Brenda's remains that were cremated in the same gravesite where where her dad is. So they're together now. So where they're located is a cemetery about I want to say sixty miles north of where I live. And I told you that we're coming up on the anniversary of her abduction. I want to say in about, what, three days now. Um, September 19th. Right. And this episode is probably not going to come out until early next week because I have a a series coming out um, that I want to put out first, but it's going to be right up against it, so it won't be very long. But this weekend, this weekend, I do, I promised you that I would go and pay her gravesite a visit. And I'm going to bring her some flowers, and I'm hoping that that it will somewhat give you a measure of closure to some extent. Thank you. Thank you, Rosie. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. We know where it's at. I have the location of the um, cemetery. I can go into the office or at the uh, information desk and find out where their um, burial plot is and... Yeah. We'll, we'll do that. I'm I'm shooting to do that hopefully this Saturday. Okay. And um, we can I can either do one of two things. I can go on Facebook Live and share it with all of our group, or I can just FaceTime with you and just do it privately. Why don't Why don't we do it Facebook Live? Because I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that once the episode is put together, I'm these years they're going to want to they're going to want to be respect as well okay sounds good well um if there isn't anything else that you want to add i can end this now i know this audio recording isn't as sharp as it should have been but i couldn't get my 
Uber conference to work properly, so we had to. Oh, lovely technology. <laughs> it, always, it always acts up when you don't want it to. Right. So I'm going to do my best to clean this up, um, but um, I, I listened back before we finished it out, and I can hear what you're saying. So I want to thank mm-hmm. you again so much for sharing this with me, and I'm really looking forward to heading to the um, cemetery this weekend. Thank you for doing that, Rosie. Sure. I really that means a lot. Thank you. Oh, and Michael Green is still sitting in jail, or is he dead? He's still, he's, he was initially put in the Walla Walla State Pen when he was first incarcerated. He was um, sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Awesome. So he's still in prison. He's still very much alive, but I don't, I know he's not in the state pen anymore, but I don't know which prison he's now in. I'll see if I can figure it out and add that on to the end of the story. But, okay, just, um, just making sure his ass is still locked up. <laughs> yeah, he. oh, he's not getting out. Yeah. He is not getting out. Thank God. Uh-huh. He is not getting out. Oh, man. Sometimes sometimes I sort of visualize going, going there and confronting him. I mean, I know I can't do it, but hmm. sometimes I think about it. He's a coward. He's a coward that picks on little children and and won't man up and fess up to it. Nope. Anyway, thank you again, Millicent. So happy to talk to you tonight. I'm going to go ahead and end the recording, and um, we'll hang up in just a sec. Hold on. Let me push stop.